Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. An evil force took his life. An unearthly power has brought him back. He is a phantom, a wraith, a cosmic spirit given another chance. Uh, are you new in town? Yeah. Who's the kid? I turned my back and the next second he was there. Like magic almost. You ever seen one of those before? Nah, let's just add it to our collection. kid out there using his car to kill people. Not that it's such a big deal, since it seems to be your gang he's got it in for. Hold on! Grab the shotgun, Mama Luca. A raid, man! A ghost! An evil spirit, and it ain't cool! What are you doing? Get in the car. What are you doing, man? You get out of my face, burger boy. You wind up dead like your brother. No! Hey, who is that guy? I don't know. But whoever he was, he's weird and ticked off. Nothing wrong. You've got nothing to fear. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me, of course, is Mr. Rob St. Mary. Vengeance is mine. Also with us this week is Patrick Bromley of the F This Movie Podcast. Hey guys, thanks for having me back. This week, we are looking at The Wraith, released in 1986. The film is directed by Mike Marvin, the same man who gave us Hot Dog the Movie and Hamburger the Motion Picture. It stars Charlie Sheen as Jake, a new face in the town of Brooks, Arizona. Jake makes his appearance around the same time as a dark-helmeted supernatural figure arrives, the mysterious Wraith of the title. This figure takes out members of Packard Walsh's gang of goofs with his badass dodge, using the seemingly indestructible car as a weapon. 
And uh, just so you know, we're going to be getting into spoilers galore in this episode. If you want to watch the movie before we ruin it for you, turn us off and then turn us on, Dead Man. After you've seen the movie, we will be here. So, Patrick, as our guest, when was the first time you saw The Wraith and what did you think? I did not see The Wraith until, I want to say, 2010 when Lionsgate put it out on DVD, which is crazy because I know this is one of those movies that was on HBO all the time when I was growing up. And I'm actually a little bit bummed that I didn't see it as a kid on HBO because this is exactly the kind of movie that I would have watched 100 times. Having said that, I'm glad that I didn't see it during sort of these intervening years, maybe like my early 20s when I was a bit trying to refine my tastes and becoming a bit of a snob because I think I might have dismissed this movie as uh, kind of disposable junk. But now I've come through the other side and I'm I'm secure in, in what I like. And uh, I have a ton of fun with this movie. This movie pushes a whole lot of my buttons. How about you, Rob? I didn't even know it existed until um, I told you that we were able to line up Mike Marvin to talk for Hamburger the Motion Picture, and you were like, you know, we should do The Wraith. And I was like, okay, whatever that is. And then I looked it up, and we did the interview with him, and then I finally got around to watching it. And for me, it very much is a time capsule of that era. It it owes a little bit of a debt to some other uh, well-known films and stories. But I think overall it holds up pretty well, and also that car's pretty cool. And uh, Mike, in case you didn't know, it's not too far from uh, where you're at there in the lovely Metro Detroit area. No, it is definitely not. This was a very special Dodge-made car, and uh, yeah, we'll be definitely hearing a lot more about that when we talk to Mike Marvin later on in the show. This one I came to, I was working at the Blockbuster in, um, oh gosh, it was called the Ann Arbor Blockbuster, but it was actually in Pittsfield, and I was working with this guy who pretty much told me you need to watch this movie i'd never really heard of it before i know i'd seen the box at other video stores but also like you patrick i had missed this when it was running on hbo because i'm sure this was a staple of cable and nope never saw it never really even paid it any attention until this guy kind of plunked down on the counter and said you have to check this out and i probably saw this when i was about 18 19 years old thought it was very goofy fun but there was a little bit more to it than it just being this kind of disposable film i went back and rewatched it again a few years ago when i was doing an article all about killer car films and kind of uh possessed vehicles those kind of things and this kind of fits in a little bit with that as far as there's some supernatural elements though the car is not being self-driven such as the car or the hearse or you know even if you want to think of the vehicle from duel being you know for sure there's a person behind the wheel in that but there's some more supernatural-ish type stuff going on with that one too so anyway i really enjoyed this and yeah when rob brought mike marvin to the table it's like yeah let's do the wraith man this is a movie that more people need to hear about or those people that have uh, seen it before maybe caught it on hbo late at night those folks would hopefully be interested in hearing more about this uh kind of goofy and star-studded cast of uh of, of this little uh, you could call it a throwaway film but i think there's a little bit more to it so let's get into the plot a little bit more we start with what it reminded me a lot of closet cases of the nerd kind these kind of uh animated things 
going around uh, the freeways of, I guess, Arizona and coming together in the form of this car and this uh, mysterious, like, leather-clad figure that's hanging out by it. And that is our title, The Wraith. And then it kind of goes into some familiar territory as far as this stranger coming into town and meeting up with this group of kind of uh, hooligans. Though we do get one scene before that of seeing the hooligans in action. And these guys are all about racing for pinks. And uh, they're not too fair about it. No, why should they be? They're trying to get those titles for those cars, because if you lose the drag race, you lose your car and you're walking back home. Why'd you stop me? What do you want? Well, let's just say it's pink. Oh, God. Forget it, pal. No way. I might forget it. I'm a nice guy. But then? They think the title to your car might be worth something. They're road pirates. That's right. <laughs> which, you know, is an old idea from, you know, the highwaymen idea of those uh, thieves and robbers who hang out on the hang out on the pike when you're coming down in your in your uh, covered wagon or whatever and they want to get something out of you. So this uh, this whole scene to me and the drag racing stuff kind of reminded me a little bit of um, like uh, Rebel Without a Cause or something like that. And the the gang is kind of a bunch of misfits. I mean, it's kind of like the odd weirdos this side of Surf Nazis Must Die. I'm so glad you actually brought that up because one of the things I wanted to point out was how much the gang reminds me. Uh, they're right out of a trauma film. I mean, most of the actors pitch their performances about on the level of a trauma film with all their colored mohawks and their uh, crazy shouting of every line. That's totally what it reminded me of. It's such a strange gang, man. I mean, we've got Nick Cassavetes as Packard Walsh. Nick looking pretty darn handsome in this movie. A little freakish at times, I guess, mostly just because he's so much taller than everybody else in the gang. Like, by heads <laughs> often. Um, and then, and he looks fairly normal. You know, he wears like a kind of a cool jacket, this kind of stuff, very eighties and everything. But then you get, yeah, like uh, skank and gutter boy and Rughead. Those guys are totally out of a trauma film, but then you get guys who have like letter jackets on and it's just like, what these guys hang out together. This doesn't make any sense to me, but you know, the the, the two guys, uh, I think it's Augie and Minty, they're just pretty much there, um, you know, to, to be picked off fairly early in the film. But still, there's a couple times where I'm just like, why are these people hanging out together? It doesn't seem like they would really um, have a lot to talk about. Well, they have a, a shared uh, love of evil. So there you go. Shared love of evil brings people together. And yeah, these guys, um, not fair. You know, it's funny that you said uh, Rebel Without a Cause because I had written down in my notes there was uh, a line in the movie where I think it's uh, Skank, or is it Gutter Boy? I, I sometimes I get those. It's Gutter Boy says, I got the bullet! And I was totally like, oh, that's like the killer line from Rebel Without a Cause when he comes running out after Plato's been shot and everything. And. 
was so emotional, James Dean in it up all over the place. And I was like, I wonder if that's a reference. So I'm glad that you brought that up because I'm thinking maybe it was. Well, not only that, but, and obviously this is, you know, almost 20 years after this movie came out, the uh, Rughead character played by Clint Howard, for some reason reminds me of like every sort of nerdy lab assistant stereotype you've seen in, in film and TV. And specifically for some reason, I want to like say that he reminds me of the opening interstitials of uh, Aqua Teen Hunger Force, the lab assistant that has to deal with the, the weird doctor who's always showing him his inventions. Sheesh. You call this a vacation? No. I call it Taco Island! <laughs> I could see that. I could really see that. I know his uh, his crazy hairstyle, I know, was modeled after Jack Nance in Eraserhead. To me, he, he, he always reminds me of Thomas Dolby. Oh, I can totally see that. Maybe it's the glasses. Oh, yeah, the glasses. And I think Thomas Dolby might have a little gap between his teeth as well. Also, Rughead blinded me with science. Yeah, well, he was kind of blinded by science or maybe supernatural science at one point when he gets to see what's inside of the Dodge Interceptor. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. So we get that opening scene where we see these guys, you know, they're not very fair when it comes to these races. They're going to do anything that it takes to get these pink slips and everything. I guess it's a little uh, faster pussycat kill kill maybe going on here too, where it's uh, trying to race these people and, you know, we get to keep your car if that's the case. And yeah, that's when afterwards is when we get Charlie Sheen coming into the film and riding on his like... I don't want to say motorcycle. It's kind of more like a moped. I mean, it's not very beefy. I would expect Charlie Sheen to have a beefier ride than this thing. Um, it very felt like, hey, Sherilyn Fenn, do you want to ride on my scooter? And she's pretty much taken with him right away when she sees him and tries to get him out of the picture when Packard shows up because Packard has this really weird relationship with her where he thinks that she's his girlfriend but she really doesn't want to be, but he really kind of insists that she is. And so it's kind of this stalkerish. Um, I don't know. If I were her, I would definitely have filed a PPO by this point. It is the uh, epitome of controlling. This this whole thing, this relationship between both of them feels like a plot from a after-school special. You think you own me, that somehow I'm your private property. You are. Nobody loves you as much as I do. Nobody. It's because everybody's scared of you. If you're not going to be my girl, you're not going to be anybody's. Oh, yeah, I can totally see that. What would the name of that special be, Rob? If I can't have you, no one will. There you go. Something like that. Yeah, because I think he says that at one point. (laughs) You know, one of the things that I noticed while I was watching this movie again the last time, and then this time I actually timed it out in a very unscientific study, Charlie Sheen's only in this movie for about 14 minutes. He really just kind of shows up here and there, and there are long stretches where he just isn't in the film at all. And, you know, eventually we figure out that he is the Wraith, this dark-helmeted guy and everything, but that's not necessarily obvious, right? Well, yeah, fuck it. Yeah, it's totally obvious that he's supposed to be the Wraith, but really it's not 
it, it could be anybody in the suit. It could be anybody being his stuntman in a lot of these high-speed chases when he's on his moped, those kind of things. So really, it felt like Charlie showed up for a couple days. It, he's not in the movie nearly as much as other characters. I mean, you get characters like Nick Cassavetes, where you see him quite often, or you get Sherilyn Fenn as Carrie Johnson, or uh, the guy who plays the Burger Slinger. He's in here all the time, Billy Hankins. He's all over the place, and, you know, it's like... He definitely has much more presence in the film, though I guess Charlie Sheen has more presence because he's supposed to be the Wraith. I didn't uh, time it out exactly either, but for sure, like, seven of those 14 minutes have to be the love scene, right? Oh, yeah. (laughs) That thing goes on for a long time. Yeah, yeah. It it goes on for a while, and then apparently some of it was cut from different releases because Sherilyn Fenn doffs her top at one point. And as a Twin Peaks fan, I was very happy to see that. And I was happy to see her in something other than like Two Moon Junction. Because for a while there, if you were uh, a fan of Sherilyn Fenn and especially her character of Audrey Horn, you didn't have a whole lot of films to choose from until like Boxing Helena came out. And then after that, but before that, it was like Two Moon Junction, uh, what was that, like Meridian, I think she was in. Meridian, baby. Yeah, so you didn't have a whole lot else going for you. So seeing uh, this scene and seeing her in uh, The Wraith definitely kind of uh, filled a need. I didn't even realize it was her because I'm so used to seeing her with dark hair. Yeah, she's kind of got that like sun-touched look going on, and she's so tan and everything, whereas when she was Audrey Horn, she was completely pale and really kind of played that up for the character and uh, had that you know dark woman kind of thing going on, or dark girl, I suppose. But she does a pretty good job in here. There's a couple times where um, she delivers some lines that are kind of clunky. There's Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. One scene in particular uh, where she and Charlie Sheen are doing this monologue, or sorry, not monologue. They're doing this scene, and just it feels like the dialogue is coming out of, I don't know, some Harlequin romance novels or something. Try and be brave against Packard, and he might kill you. Or he might let you go. Courage isn't easy to come by. That's how he keeps those goons with him all the time. They're just scared. So am I. Carrie, listen. There's going to come a time when you'll have to take a stand. When you do that, that's when you free yourself up a little sooner. I want to believe you. I really do. And I was like, oh, God, this kind of (laughs) hurts. 
So it doesn't take too long until we figure out where everybody is at when it comes to this. We have the bad guys very broadly painted, and then we have kind of the good guys here. We've got Charlie Sheen, who's hanging around. We've got this guy, Billy, who works at the burger place, and his brother was killed probably about, what, a year ago or so? They don't really make that too clear. And his brother was going out with Sherilyn Fenn, and so through a series of flashbacks, usually through Packard's eyes, we see what happened to the brother, Jamie Hankins, and get to see um, that he and, and uh, Sherilyn Fenn were, were making a little whoopee, and these guys came in and pulled him off of her, and they were stabbing him and, and uh, carving up his back and all this stuff, and then... It pretty much second scene we see with Charlie Sheen, we see that he has all these scars all over his back. So it's pretty quick that we make the conclusion that, you know, maybe he and Jamie Hankins have a little bit of a connection, especially because they look so similar. We don't see the guy that plays Jamie too often, but when we do, it's like the guy has a real striking resemblance to Charlie Sheen. It seems odd to me that, uh, and I know I'm, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, that the movie even treats it as kind of a, a reveal that Charlie Sheen is the Wraith because it is so obvious throughout the movie. So why are we pretending like we shouldn't know until that final scene? It's, it's an interesting choice. I think they just, maybe for the people in the, the way back or in the 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 balcony or something it's like hey guys for sure this is what's going on because it is not too thinly veiled of a mystery but they do treat it like that i have to say it's interesting because the wraith he goes after all the guys that are in the gang except for rughead he only goes after the guys who were there when this event happened to jamie and when he goes after them he basically uses their tactics against them for the most part. This whole idea of racing and, um, you know, does the drag race, I think twice with these guys. And the first time he just, uh, parks his car sideways across the, <laughs> the freeway and lets the other guy run into him. And it's like, okay, that's an interesting way of, of killing these people. <laughs> just, you know, using yourself as this almost kamikaze pilot or a roadblock and letting your car get completely destroyed and, you with it but as soon as the car is destroyed it comes back again and um, the victims the the bad guys in this case they have they look completely normal uh i think they're they're usually naked if memory serves and their eyes look like they've been kind of plucked out of their head or burned out of their head so it uh again very supernatural very um early in the film and then we have the uh, character of Sheriff Loomis coming in, who's played by Randy Quaid, and he's investigating this case, though maybe he's not the best investigator in the world. No, he's like one step up from his character in Christmas Vacation. I mean, he's not the sharpest knife in the drawer. No, he's he, he looks at the evidence, kind of knows that something weird's going on, but it's almost like uh, it kind of feels a little Ed Wood-esque. Like, I expect him to scratch his head with his gun, like, hmm, that's a dead body, all right. Again, I feel like there's more time devoted to him removing the pickles from his burger than there is to him solving the case. And maybe <laughs> this is a callback 
to uh, this director's previous work. I couldn't say for sure, but there's a lot of time spent with him uh, and that burger that he never gets to eat. Yeah, I really wish that this had taken place at a Buster Burger drive-in instead of this uh, drive-in that they have throughout the film. Well, that was the thing I was thinking is there's um, all of the hamburger stuff that he shot in the film just before this one, I'm sure, came in handy when shooting the uh, little hamburger stand. And then also, if you notice, the hot dog is on special at the hamburger stand. Very nice. You think that was a a callback? Can I Buster help you? (laughs) One thing that was a weird callback and kind of stuck out like a sore thumb to me was uh, using the line, I don't know what the hell's in there, but it's weird and pissed off, whatever it is. From the thing inside of this one, when uh, Gutter Boy said that. I don't know. But whoever he was, he's weird and pissed off. Whoa, what is going on? I guess Gutter Boy, maybe he's, uh, you know, uh, the the cinephile of the group and is peppering his language with uh, callbacks to other films. Did anyone else notice that? I haven't seen I the thing in so long, I can't remember. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't think I caught the uh, the reference either. But again, I had I seen this as a kid, I could not have appreciated how much of this movie draws from other movies it's it's become very sort of fashionable now to do that to sort of mix up all these other films that you've seen into one uh genre movie and this movie does it i think way ahead of its time but i i did not catch the reference to the thing sometimes it feels like skank and gutter boy are just kind of in their own movie um there's (laughs) one point where they are going after charlie sheen and sherilyn fenn and it is just this exercise in comedy as they're going going along and poor uh gutter boy is just he is um he's on fire i mean both of these guys are just playing it to the hilt and i think that's one of the reasons why i enjoy watching them so much i mean you expect clint howard to be you know going insane you know especially after seeing movies like ice cream man and you know carnosaur and these kind of things you would want a a broader clint howard performance but he's actually kind of restrained in this apart from the hair and the glasses and everything but he's a relatively a normal guy especially compared to skank gutter boy they are the uh rosencrantz and gildenstern of the wraith <laughs> very nice very nice. Well, one thing I was kind of amazed by, and I know this was made in 1985-86, is the fact that this soundtrack has so many relatively big-name groups and artists that if you tried to do this today, it would probably cost the whole budget of this film in order to get all that music. I was also uh, very pleasantly surprised that uh, all of those music rights were retained for the DVD release because I could easily see this being a movie where all of a sudden there are approximations of a lot of these songs. But yeah, I, I had the same reaction as I revisited it uh, every few minutes. A really big hit would come on and uh, that too kind of adds to the the time capsule charm of the movie. And even hits that were just recent when the film came out. I mean, you have... Uh, what is it? Uh, the Robert Palmer tunes in there, which I think was top in the charts in 85, 86. And then there's an Aussie track in there, which to me sounds like may have been written for the film because I don't necessarily remember that one unless it's off one of the mid 80s albums that I can't quite remember. But it's it's pretty amazing, like in terms of what they were able to do with this film. Not only that, but I mean, like the stunts in relation to the to the cars and everything. I mean, this is all decade before digital, so it's all practical it's all they used actual cars and actual crashes and explosions and everything and it it 
works really well. Yeah, I was really impressed by the car hauler that they have at one point where it's just losing cars left and right on the freeway. And we've got a chase going on. We've got the car hauler going on. We've got at least three cop cars. And yeah, it was all really well filmed and really well choreographed. And unfortunately, there was a uh, death that was involved in the making of this film, automotive related. But um, the stunts and everything really helped this film. And, and yeah, just the car mayhem, the vehicular manslaughter that's happening in here. I mean, we've got the Wraith doing this thing a couple times where he's just you know putting himself in the path of these other vehicles. And then there's one point where he just, uh, when poor Skank and Gutter Boy get it, he just uses his car like a missile, basically, and and shoots himself into this warehouse where there was a lot of acetylene and all this stuff going on before, and Packard warns him, like, don't fire that gun, but nothing ever kind of comes of it. But apparently all the acetylene was still there later on when he just shoots this car right into the, the warehouse and blows it to kingdom come. And fortunately Rughead is, is spared from that. We should talk about that car a little bit. I did a little research on it and it was a, a car that Dodge created in the early eighties and it was only used for promotional things. And as a pace car, like at the Indy 500 and things like that, and they only made like six of them. And they used two of them in this film, and one of them, I don't know if it's from this film or one of the six that they created, is actually on display at the Walter P. Chrysler Museum in Auburn Hills, so um, just north of Detroit. So if you're interested in the Wraith and you want to see the actual Wraith car, one of them at least, uh, go check out the Chrysler Museum. You kind of sound like you're from Barcelona and saying race car when you say that. Race car. The Wraith car. Go check out the Wraith car. It's aim fabulous. Thank you. And of course, there's another Detroit connection going on with this film, which is Sherilyn Fenn herself, who was from the area. And a lot of people may, maybe not know that she is related to another famous Detroiter, Susie Quattro, the punk rocker who uh, made her appearance on Happy Days quite a few times as Leather Tuscadero. Yeah, I know you're a big Happy Days fan, but she was also part of, in the late 60s, early 70s, I believe, with her sisters called the Pleasure Seekers, which were a Detroit band. And I hate to say it, but musically, Susie Quattro seems to get more respect over in UK and in France than she does in her own hometown. Not a lot of folks are big Susie Quattro fans in Detroit for some reason. But yet, Bob Seeger still gets tons of airplay. You know, like a rock. That's all I got to say. <laughs> Maybe she should have recorded a... a- a few tunes that could have been used by Chrysler or Ford or somebody. You do what you can. Yeah. So the movie goes along at a pretty normal pace. I mean, you know, it's just pretty much the Wraith picking off these guys in interesting ways. We're getting these flashbacks throughout the film. We have this conflict going on between Packard and Sherilyn Fenn. Does anybody else think that Packard Walsh, that maybe his first name was a, a, a nod to the Packard company? Absolutely. All right, good. And speaking of Packard, if you still want to visit the old Packard plant, it's still standing in Detroit. It's been there almost 60 years, abandoned, and it's one of the biggest industrial ruins, I think, in the world. So uh, enjoy and and make sure that you have your um, tetanus up to date before you go there. Yeah, that is a prime location for ruined porn, as they say. If you want to go see some uh, interesting decay, that is one of the places that you have to check out that. And I think like the old train station and there's a couple other places on the must-see list for uh, seeing what Detroit used to be at one point. Like I said, the film goes along at this pace. We know pretty much, I mean, I 
think I knew the first time out what was going to happen in this film as soon as it started going, but yet it's enjoyable. Like I said, it's by the numbers, but I like those numbers. I like the car chases. I like the interactions of the characters. I almost like that. I don't get a whole lot of Charlie Sheen. Uh, I, I kept thinking of him in other films while I was watching it this last time. I kept thinking of him in hot shots and things. And I like hot shots a lot, but you know, it's almost to the point where he, well, he's kind of become the joke rather than being able to be the, you know, perform the jokes. So it's, it's interesting that this movie has two stars in it that have basically become unhinged or, uh, as we're going to hear Clint Howard say in a few minutes, uh, Randy Quaid has gone off the reservation. So we ne- don't get a whole lot of scenes of those two guys together, but when you look at them, it's like, Oh yeah, they, both of these guys go crazy in their own way in just a couple decades. Well, let's talk about that ending and the reveal. There's something about it that kind of troubles me a little bit. And what bothers me with the ending is, okay, after all the gangs killed off, and I think it's Randy Quaid's character goes, well, that's it, you know, he's got his revenge and we won't see any more problems. The car pulls up in front of Sherilyn Fenn's character's house. He gets out, he takes the mask off, you know, the helmet off, and it's Charlie Sheen. And we get the feeling that they're going to be together. But the thing is, is that, is he him? Is he taking, like, is his soul taking over the body of Charlie Sheen? Has he morphed from some sort of, like, supernatural character into actual being a human? I'm I'm kind of, I, like, the ending left me with a lot of questions in terms of, you know, how do you go from being this sort of vengeful spirit to, you know, being flesh again, I guess, is for lack of a better way to say it. I also, uh, when he does pull off the mask, he says something like, oh, I can't do that again. And it's kind of a jokey moment. And I just, the way that their last scene together plays out has always bothered me. It feels so out of step with the rest of the movie in terms of its tone and the way that they kind of talk to each other. It's very, very on the nose. And it almost feels like, not a rewrite, but you know, uh, that it's a kind of a forced happy ending. I mean, the logical ending to the movie is okay. My work here is done and now I'm going to, you know, disappear, vanish. I did what I came here to do. Um, but yeah, like you said, he's just going to live his life now as Chuck Sheen and, and drive off into the sunset with Sherilyn Fenn. That, that last scene, uh, to me always feels a little bit at odds with the rest of the movie. Yeah, because Billy really is the guy who's been taking care of her, watching out for her. You can tell that he's carrying a torch for her, which is kind of weird because he, you know she was his brother's girl. And it feels like more of a crush situation than a caretaker, caregiver kind of situation to me. So, yeah, it's, it, it's a little weird in that way. And yeah, I was very surprised seeing again that she gets on that motorcycle and goes off with him. And it was just like, wait, no, you should be leaving him. Uh, you should be leaving her by the curb and she should go on with her own life because yeah, he should just disappear into the ether because that's where he came from. And that's where he should go back to. Cause there are several scenes where he's just driving along and poof, he, you know, turns into fireworks and goes off into the distance or kind of, you know, close encounters of the third t- kinds it, uh, off into the Arizona sky. And it's like, what? 
are they going to turn into stars together or what kind of malarkey is this? I don't know. The other thing that confused me was this whole idea of the, the kind of uh, braces that are on the Wraith character. And when he kills these guys, each time he kills one of them, or at least you see it very clearly the first time. And then with lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved. We are gathered here today to, has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Kind of see it a little bit as you go along. These braces that he has on himself that disappear once he kills one of the guys. And it's like... I'm not really sure what that's supposed to signify either. I mean, it's not like, you know, Forrest Gump running and the braces flying off of him or something. It's just like, I don't really get the idea that he is, uh, you know, in chains or something. And each time, you know, one of the guys dies, he becomes a little bit more free. Unless maybe that's supposed to say, I am becoming more human again as I kill these people. Yeah, that would be my that would be my guess, maybe just based on what we were just talking about. And maybe it's an idea that kind of hit the cutting room floor or just was never fully fleshed out. But, yeah, maybe each time a brace is removed, he becomes uh, one step closer to starring on Two and a Half Men. (laughs) Poor guy. Well, he would uh, eventually go on to platoon right after this. As a matter of fact, Mike Marvin tells an interesting story on how uh, he may, may have been the deciding vote on that possibility. All right, we're going to take a break and play an interview with two of the Wraith's baddies, Rughead and Gutterboy, a.k.a. Clint Howard and James Bozian. I guess there's a little bit of a similarity between Rock and Roll High School and The Wraith. is just that it, both films have such a strong cast and... To see, you know, Charlie Sheen and Nick Cassavetti, Sherilyn Fenn, Randy Quaid, I mean, just so many great actors all in one film. What was that experience like for you working on The Wraith? I had a wonderful time. It was, it, you know, we shot in Tucson, Arizona in the fall, and the weather was great. And, and, you know, when they went out and did all that driving stuff, they could really go and get really good vistas. And, you know, whenever I see a piece of that movie... And, you know, especially the driving stuff. I mean, it just, look, I mean, it's great. I mean, you know, I, I, I admire quite a bit of that movie. Some of that movie sort of, you know, doesn't ring true to me. But generally speaking, I thought it was great. But working on it, the camaraderie that we developed, you know, David Sherrill and Jamie Bozian and I and Nick, you know, and Charlie. Charlie is a wonderful fellow. I, I, you know, got to know him and actually did a couple of short films that he directed soon after the race. And so, you know, we spent some time hanging out together when I was in my, you know, mid-20s and he was in his early 20s. 
But and that all came from the race. The race is one of those movies. Apollo 13 and the race are the two films that I have maintained relationships with the people I've worked with. Yeah, David Sherrill and Jamie Bosey, and I called them New Year's Eve. I mean, it's one of those things. They're just old friends that have stuck. And, and uh, you know, I, I thought they were both great as Skank and Gutter Boy. And I've, I always wanted to work with Randy. I, Randy was an idol of mine. In fact, here's an anecdotal piece of trivia. We auditioned for the same role in the last picture show that he ended up getting the part. He was a little older and a little bigger than me, but I was right in the thick of it. I actually went back to the semifinals or the finals of the audition, and Randy ended up getting the part. But it didn't really bother me. He did such a great job in that movie. I mean, he didn't say anything. He was just sweeping. Uh, but he just had a great look, and he, was, and he was great in the last detail, very organic in everything he's done. Uh, he was one of those guys. There, there were actually two guys there are three actually that in my life that I would like to work with professionally. And Randy Quaid was one of them. This is before he jumped the reservation, of course. But, and David Bowie, who I haven't had the chance to work with, uh, was the other. And, uh, geez, I'm brain locking right now, but there's a, there, oh, Jack Nicholson. My dad has gotten to work with Jack a few times, uh, but I don't believe I'll ever have the chance. I got to work with De Niro. What, what did you work on to, with uh, on De Niro? I'm trying to remember. We worked on Backdraft. I, oh, I, that's right. Yeah, yeah, and it was quite an experience. He's better than you think he is. I mean, it's like as good as... I, 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 the experience as a young actor was really, really great because, you know, his process ends up putting him in a position where he is just creating gold. And, you know, when he's like, the one thing I was told by Ron, well, first of all, everybody was a little nervous because, you know, Bob was, you know, I mean, getting Bob De Niro to be in backdraft was a big deal. And so so getting Donald Sutherland to be in backdraft was a big deal. But, but, you know, okay, Bob, you know, and I didn't audition for backdraft. Ron just gave me the role and his partner, Brian Grazer, after Ron had given me the part of playing the autopsy technician with that scene, Brian was kind of nervous, and he said, maybe we should audition some people. And Ron said, no, no, well, I think Clint will be okay. And then once Brian saw the dailies, he went to Ron, and he said, you know, Clint doesn't never has to audition again. So I guess I, I, guess I held my own. I, but he, I was warned that Bob likes to do a lot of takes, and he does. And at first, it's not that he's not prepared. It's just that he's warming up. And yet, by the seventh or eighth take, what's coming out of the scene is just absolute, just, you know, we are, I don't want to get too weird about it, but it's almost like, you know, we were mining nuggets. We were finding little surprises inside the scene. And I was, you know, aware of what he was doing, and I was, so I was following along, and he appreciated that. And, you know, we ended up having a great scene together. And it was, you know, and a wonderful memory for me. Well, I figured the better the actor that you're in a scene with, the better you're going to be because you get to feed off of their energy and they feed off of you. Well, yes, 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 of course. It's a lot like golfing. You know, if you, if you play with a good foursome and they're really serious about it, you're going to probably play better than if you play with your, you know, fat uncle Charlie, you know, who hits like an 80-year-old woman in leg chains. You know, but then, but getting back to the race, it was... You know, it was a limited budget, but it was not a low-budget movie. It was just limited. So, you know, we knew we were moving fast, and the, the, the accommodations were all pretty dubious, you know. I mean, it wasn't that they didn't treat us like stars. They, in fact, I think 
they were a little paranoid that we were going to somehow not be professional because of our age. And we were, we were heard, we were heard of young 20 something, you know, guys with, you know, pretty in their pocket living in Tucson. Griffin O'Neill was in it. Chris Nash was in it. Uh, Sherilyn Finn, of course, you know, huge role. And at the time she was dating Johnny Depp and Johnny came to Tucson and, you know, hung out for a few weekends while we were there, uh, which was kind of a trip. Um, the first time I met Johnny was, was there. Is that how the uh, RPG movies kind of got made? Yes. Well, you know, uh, after, after Charlie came, pa- came back from uh, Platoon, because Johnny had worked on Platoon, but he had done you know, a small little tiny role in Platoon, and, and Charlie was over there. And Charlie had, you know, finally made enough money to where you know, spending twenty or $30,000 know, making a short film wasn't, you know, didn't scare him. In fact, he had signed he had signed a deal with some studio, to, you know, a three movie deal. Now the money's a joke, but but at the time it you know was pointing him in the right direction. So he self invested money, and he had met and become friends with Johnny, and so Johnny and I starred in uh, RPG. And you know there were two RPGs made, and the first time it was starring Clint Howard and Johnny Depp, and then before we could do the second one. Johnny had become a star of that TV show, um, the, the, the one they shot up in Canada. Um, yeah, 21 Jump Street. And in fact, Charlie had to privately fly Johnny down from Vancouver. And I mean, Johnny only worked on, on RPG2 a couple of days because he had to fly up and work on Jump Street. And, but our, our credits got switched. He laughed me. Johnny Depp laughed me. <laughs> it went from being starring Clint Howard and Johnny Depp to starring Johnny Depp and Clint Howard. Oh, well, not a bad guy to get lapped by. No, no. And uh, from what I hear, he's still working. So Yes, I think he's, yeah, yeah, he does a movie or two from time to time. He's got some property, travels around. And I think probably the first question I would ask Johnny is, hey, hey, Johnny, do you know how many shitters you own? Do you have that number handy for you? Oh, yeah, I could tell you. I, you know, listen, I only own one home. It's a three-bedroom, I mean, it's a four-bedroom, three-bath house. I've got three. I've got three commodes. But I know, you know, when people start to buy places and start to buy big places, you know, I, listen, I, I don't believe my brother ever knew exactly how many commodes he had in, on his, in his property. When it comes to the Wraith, I hear that there was some tension between the producers and what was going on with everybody else. Is that true? Yeah, this fellow John Kimeney, his underwear was too tight. And I don't know, you know, somebody had drawn up some press clippings about John Kimeney that he read. And, you know, he seemed like a nice enough fellow. And, hey, somebody's got to hold the brain. Somebody's got to be kind of the, you know, the the authority figure. And he was almost kind of like the stern principal of the school. And, you know, he had some lame rules and he, you know, but you know what? He got the movie made. I mean, you know, I don't think I sent him a Christmas card the following year, but he got the movie made. You know, he did what he he thought he had to do. But yeah, there was some tension. But listen, you know, I mean, he was dealing with, he was dealing with a cast of young, you know, toxic Peter Pan. We didn't exactly like finish work and, you know, run over to the YMCA and work out for an hour and then go to church and then go to bed. That just wasn't really in our, you know, itinerary. But it all got done. I mean, you know, that, listen, 
it, it, when you do something like manufacture a movie, there's bound to be friction in certain places. And, and, and some of it may be founded and some of it may be unfounded. And I don't know what would have happened if, if, if the producer would have been a hippie, you know. Uh, and Mike Marvin was a young guy, you know, making a, he had written a pretty good script. He was a good writer. Mike, I'll tell you what, I, I've read a couple of scripts that Mike had written, and they were very simple, and he had kind of an attitude about his writing. But you know what? He was a pretty good writer. You know, I like Mike as a person, but he didn't quite have enough authority to sort of override the producer. And so he was kind of stuck in the middle, dealing with a young cast, and he was trying to keep everybody happy. And, you know, listen, there was a limited amount of money. This wasn't Heaven's Gate. You know, we were going to be in Tucson for four or five weeks, and that was going to be it. I could understand the producer's neuroses about it all and keeping us on a short leash. No, I, I, I imagine with all of those uh, young men in one place, it probably was not uh, very easy. It seemed easy to me. I mean, it, you know, listen, I was experienced at the time. I mean, for me, I was a veteran. I'd been working for frigging, you know, over 20 years. But, you know, and I thought all these guys were, you know, they were all pros. There was nobody sucking the oxygen out of the room. Charlie was, you know, Charlie was happy-go-lucky, and he was good, and he was a very giving guy and a part of the team. Everybody was part of the team. The only person who didn't really, who wasn't part of the team was the producer. But if that's how he feels like he needs to position himself, oh, well, you know, it ain't my money. I doubt if it was his money either, but, you know, he represented it. It was his job. He was the steward. You know, I think they all wished it was a little better than it was, but you know what? It holds up pretty well. It's an interesting movie, and it's got a lot of fans. Yeah, I was going to ask you, when it comes to people recognizing you on the street, what do they typically recognize you for? It's a variety. It's hardly ever rugged because I'm bald. I get Seinfeld a lot, of course, you know, I get Star Trek, and I get, you know, of course, Ron Howard's brother, you know, just, they know me as Ron Howard's brother, or the Waterboy, Sandler's movies, Little Nicky, you know, um, um, and of course, listen, here's, and also, you know, my wonderful fortune about, you know, what's happened to me, it's a wide array of things. I mean, I'll get people, like, on Facebook. They'll see the episode I did of Odd Couple, which will remind them, oh, yeah, you know, it was an Odd Couple. You know, Gentle Ben, you know, there are grandmothers that remember Gentle Ben. I mean, there's people, you know, anybody, you got to be over 40 to know what Gentle Ben is. I was so happy to see you show up on that Shatner roast. Oh, yeah. Well, listen, you know, the guy, the guy who directed, and I'll think of his name in just a second, um, rats and i'm embarrassed because it's not coming right to my head very famous very famous sort of television event director he was the one that called and asked me and i had worked with him once before on another project and also too he was the one that directed the mtv movie awards the year that i got the lifetime achievement award and he was so impressed with my attitude and he, and he told me, I actually, my wife and I got to go to the Super Bowl one year in New Orleans. I, I had done some sort of work for the NFL, and, and they, they said, hey, you know, you want the opportunity to, 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 you know, they didn't send a private jet for me, but I had a couple of tickets waiting for me at, to go to the Super Bowl, so we decided to go. Oh, Joey Gallon, Joel Gallon is his name, and he he. His job at that time was to direct the halftime show of the Super Bowl. And we were at one of those Super Bowl parties, you know, 
And he came up to me and he said, hey, my, I'm Joel. I have, oh, hi, Joel. How you doing? Yeah, nice to see you again. And he said, listen, I just want to tell you, that segment, that, that, that the Lifetime Achievement Award segment, was probably the best piece of television I ever put together. And, and it made me feel pretty proud. Um, but he was the one that did the roast. And because I normally, listen, if it wouldn't have been somebody like that, I probably would have looked at my appointment book and no matter what the page looked like, I would have said, oh, I'm busy that day. Also, as it turns out, I believe Ben Stiller, Ben Stiller may have jogged their, their imagination and, and, and he's a huge Star Trek fan and he had done something for that roast and he had actually brought my name up to the people who were doing the roast, to Joel. And, and, and he had, and then because a few months later, he hired me for Night at the Museum too. I mean, being a Star Trek geek, I have a quick Star Trek story. You know, this is years and years ago, and I was a young man. But, you know, I did Star Trek when I was, what, six years old. And I went, I had an appointment, basically a meeting, an audition. It was a general audition with, with uh, uh, George Lucas for a project he was doing. And I believe it was Star Wars. They were seeing everybody in town. And I was of age and on the list. And, you know, it certainly wasn't right for the part or anything. But anyway, I got called in. And I walk into this big room. And Francis Coppola is sitting in a big leather chair. And there's another fellow, Fred Roos, who is sitting there, who's a producing partner of them. And, and then the chair was turned, this big leather chair was turned around and George Lucas slowly swivels around in this big leather chair. And, and, and then you realize it's George Lucas because he's not a very big guy. I mean, the, the leather chair completely swallowed him up. So he spun around and he... With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. He looks at me and he goes, Commander Baylock, Corbinite Maneuver. <laughs> and I'm, in my mind, I'm saying to myself, geez, George, get a life. <laughs> So anyway, but yeah, hey, you know what? It, it, if I if I tried to guide my career or tried to you know whatever, I would have just mucked it up. You know, I'm sort of a go with the flow guy, and you know, I hopefully realize that when the, when opportunity arises, I don't muck it up. What are you working on uh, coming up that you're excited about? You know, I don't really have anything. I There is a little independent movie project that I basically co-wrote along with a fellow who is no longer with us. And, and I, have been, I have been sort of working on it, doing drafts, assembling, 
trying to get investors. Um, it's an interesting little project. It would be a lot of people would call it a pure vanity project. I just think it's a great little story. It's a little horror movie. It's sort of a psychological horror movie, kind of like whatever happened to Baby Jane, but more modern and more horror. Uh, but it, it, anyway, it, it, it was pretty close to making it last fall. Um, on a very limited budget, we hadn't quite figured out exactly how we were going to spend the money and do it for, you know, and get what we wanted. Uh, the, the script had a few demands in terms of production value. And it was, you know, I, I was, I, I was determined, I still am determined that we get those production values. And then also too, this past fall, I had my right hip replaced and I was this late summer as we were into early pre-production, my right hip began to really kill me. And in consultation with my brother, who, you know, is certainly a part of this in spirit and, 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 and wants to, would love to see me direct a movie, not that I have any sort of burning desire to try to chase him. It's just, you know, it'd be something to do. And he likes the story. Uh, but he said to me, he goes, listen, if your hip is, is bothering you and you can't sleep or anything, you have, you're just beginning pre-production. You don't want to do that to yourself. You'll, you, it'll, it'll, you'll, you'll, it's torture. So anyway, I parked it, and, and maybe this spring and this summer I will come back and revisit it, which is going to mean fundraising. And, you know, listen, making a movie is not sexy. I mean, and, and, and another thing about making a movie is if I independently can get some financing and get a million dollars raised, my goodness, my main job is to be like that fellow on the race. My main job is to be the guardian and the custodian of that investment money. You know, as the director and the actor, you know, that's all fine and good, and I can flex my muscles that direction, but my foremost responsibility is to my, is to my investors and making sure that, you know, as, as a filmmaker, I take every nickel and put it on the screen. Well, hey, this has been wonderful. I don't want to take up more of your time. You've been so generous to me already. I, oh, no, I really thank you. Listen, I'd like, you, like, like I told you before, you know, I got my, uh, my mom's side of the family, the Spiegels, they had a gift of gab. And my goodness, I had relatives that could talk me under the table. But talking is not, not a problem of mine, and I certainly appreciate the opportunity to reflect back on these movies and, 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 and have a conversation about it. And, you know, no problem. Well, hey, you know, when I put up on our Facebook that we're going to be talking to you, I had so many people say, are you doing evil speak? <laughs> well, maybe some other time. I was going to say maybe in 20... 2016, if you're up for yeah, it. Yeah, you know, maybe I'll circle back. Maybe if I get this little independent thing off the ground, I might end up, you know, stepping on your back and saying, hey, give me some help. Give me some PR. Mr. Howard, if there's anything I can do to ever help you, just let me know. How did you get into the business? Oh, God. You know, I always, I guess I was like a lot of, yeah, I did plays in high school and just got into it that way. I was always always doing plays, and then towards the end of my in my senior year, I actually was able to get some like professional type work. So I was juggling all all those. I I just always wanted to be an actor. I guess I, I always wanted to be I wanted to be a golfer too. But then I really wanted to be an actor. I started playing in golf tournaments, and you know realized that the guys like twenty twenty pounds lighter than me and smaller than me were hitting the ball fifty yards further. But then I, you know, I was always acting to uh, to the theater, really. And I went to, I studied at Cal Arts, California Institute of the Arts, and uh, just kind of kind of took it 
from there, I've been pretty blessed. How did you um, kind of make that transition from student to professional jobs? Well, you know, when I was in, when I was at CalArts, I was, I was started going on auditions. That's one of the reasons why I kind of parted ways from CalArts. Uh, got kicked out, actually. <laughs> yeah, so I was always trying to break in. I, I, even when I was, I was, it was a pretty rigorous tr- training training program. Same time, I was trying to foster relationships in in L.A. You know, do that that kind of thing. And they, I remember uh, one summer at their at our school, they, Clint Eastwood was there filming Firefox. They did a couple. Of, it's like an old movie, Firefox, where it involves like jet fighter, the jet fighter that you're able to steer with your mind or something. Like that. that was an old Clint Eastwood movie. Oh yeah, I saw it at the drive-in. Right. <laughs> they were filming. There were scenes that they were filming from that movie at Cal Arts because it was kind of empty during the summer and I was living in the dorms there. I remember Clint Eastwood, I was able to just stand there and watch him. I remember watching Clint Eastwood direct. And you know, I wish it was such a better story because I really was there. I went to, when they were filming there, they were there for several days and I was there for like three days. It's not like some maximum story where like I hung out. Clint Eastwood took me under his wing. I wish it was some amazing story like that. But I just remember being there and watching Clint Eastwood, and I was like, oh, man, I really want to do this, you know, so I, I have my main background in theater, but I always wanted to be in film, and I just wanted to, you know, and then, and then I was able to do it, and then not do it, and then do it, and now I just, like, I'm involved in development and storytelling, and of course, I want to, I want to be an actor, but I want more want to be an actor towards, you know, creating stuff. On, not on my own, but just collaborating with other people and getting projects done. Just in answer to your question, overall, it was really just what I always wanted. I always wanted to do. Now I know you'd been in stuff before the Wraith, like uh, an after-school special, a couple other things. Uh, how was that kind of transition to being in this film, which was a fairly big deal at the time when it came out? Yeah, I had done a few things, but the Wraith was my first feature film, the first movie I ever did. It was such a big, it was such a huge deal for me. I mean, it was amazing. It was my, you know, and really it was my best ever professional experience. You know, a lot of actors, you know, they have life-changing experiences working on the film, you know, tattoos, friends for life, that kind of thing. You know, everybody has theirs. Well, uh, the Wraith was mine. You shared a lot of scenes with David Shirell. What was he like working with? He was pretty amazing. Dave, Dave and I just really, we connected, we connected, you know, acting-wise from the start in terms of acting together. We're really, really super different as people, but we just connected uh, artistically. We were, Dave and I were actually the first two that were cast in the movie. I mean, you know, of course, they, you know, we were just supporting players and they were looking for big names and all that kind of stuff. But Dave Sherrill and I, to the best of my knowledge, I don't know if Mike Marvin's you know, he probably didn't venture in, into the weeds that much, but he, I think Dave and I were the first two people that were cast. In the, the scenes that you have together, it's almost a different movie from the rest of the film, and that's the movie I want to watch. Like Especially <laughs> when you guys are pursuing Charlie Sheen, that is one of my favorite scenes. Well, that scene, you know, it's funny because Mike, the, the genius of... You know, the, the amazing thing about Mike Marvin is the amount of freedom that, you know, he, he gave at the time and still gives because I've collaborated with him, uh, you know, other times subsequent to that. And he's just all, so amazing. That's, that's the, you know, the funny, the best thing about all those, all these guys that we worked with on this movie and we've all stayed in contact, Mike on down, you know, Charlie and Nick and all that, is that they're unbelievable collaborators. 
all these guys. I, I like them more as artistic collaborators than I do as people. <laughs> you know, I've, I've worked with all of them subsequently on, you know, various projects, scripts, readings, music, the whole nine yards. They're, all those guys are very well-read and opinionated people. And they're better as collaborators than they are as people. If you can put that in print. <laughs> I love those guys. The scene where we're chasing Charlie. Well, there were a few. There were only a few lines in that that were actually in the script. And I remember, you know, Mike says that. Mike, I think in interviews has said that you know everything was. I don't. I don't know if he said that everything was scripted, but really that scene was was really generated on the spot. We were Dave and I were really locked in on the characters, and 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 everything was going so well. It was so exciting. I remember we were about to film the the first those main things, the main chase scene. Mike leaned in. Dave and I had been working on it, developing it, saying a couple of things we want to say. The night that we filmed that was the anniversary of James Dean's death. So that's when I, when I say the line, I got the bullet. That's our James Dean tribute. You know, Mike I just like kind of leaned in the car and says, all right, you guys, what do you got? And we sort of told him what we want to do. And he just kind of said, let's do it. He was really open always. We did a lot of rewriting and collaborating on the spot just based on what was happening or what, what had been developed. But that, yeah, that scene, that was, that was, a, that's a pretty fun, that's a funny scene. It kind of, kind of holds up. The, that movie was so dopey. Like the more you get away, the older that movie gets, the better it gets for whatever reason. The energy that you bring to that role. I mean, both you and, and David, you're just so tweaked out during that. And it just is amazing that you can maintain that level of energy through that entire performance. Yeah, my jaw kind of got pretty jacked up working on that. And my teeth kind of got jacked up from all that crap I was putting in there. But uh, yeah, it was really, it was really fun. I mean, that, yeah, that character, when I was going to go in for the audition, I was just kind of like washing up in the morning. And it was just only a few lines in the, in the, in the, you know, the part of the script, the side that they give you. And I, I remember uh, just looking in the mirror. I was like, what can I do with this line? And I kind of jacked my jaw over and I said, wow, everything. I, and I said a few of the lines. And I was like, everything, every time, that sounds really funny. Like everything. And I just kept talking that way until I got it to where I could talk like that nonstop. And then I went in. That's how I did when I went into the audition. That level of collaboration that you had with your co-stars and that level of freedom that Mike Marvin gave you when it came to being able to come up with the scene on your own. Have you had that in subsequent films that you've worked on? You try and jam it in on various other things that you work with, that that you work with. You know, it just all depends on what's going on when you're, when you're filming, out, filming it and where the project's at. The answer is no. I ne- I've never had that freedom and, you know, that level of ex- exhilaration artistically on any project I've ever done since. You know, I caught the James Dean line and I was, I'm so oh. happy now that that was there because I was like, it, it, is that what, it is? was he recalling Rebel Without a Cause? There was a line in there too, and I can't remember if it's you or David that say it, that uh, whatever it is, it's weird and pissed off. It's weird and pissed off, yes. Because that was, you know, Dave is a sci-fi monster, and it was actually Dave Sherrill, I think, came up with the idea for I Got the Bullets, or I don't know, it might have been me. My remembering is that Dave came up with that, but Dave was constantly doing Dave was constantly doing that. You know, it gets back to collaboration. You're constantly, when you're, when, when you, everybody's on board and doing the same thing. I mean, I'm making this 
freaking movie sound like Gone with the Wind. I'm just speaking from my personal experience. It's, it's we all know it's a uh, it's a cartoon and it is what it is, and you know, but it does get better with age. When everybody is on board in that moment, you know, you're just throwing things in there. And Davis, you know, he's all, he's a big and he knows everything about everything that's going on all, all the time, and you know, still does to this day. So he was, you know, he has a movie guy. We're always trying to put movie stuff in there, you know. That was always welcome. You know, Mike, it's like anything that worked. You know, people were, it was a kind of set where people were not speaking out of tune. Whenever somebody was saying something, the timing was right. It seemed like to me, just seemed like everything, you know, in that particular thing, everything just came together. Every, you know, everybody collaborated and threw stuff in. Now, you and Nick would work again together on uh, Attack of the Killer Bimbos, right? Yes. Nick is really unbelievable to work with as an actor. It's, uh, you know, I, 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 that's mainly how I think of him, because that's how I got to know him. You know, and as a director, I mean, there's nobody on earth who's, you know, better with actors. So, yeah, Nick is, yeah, I worked with Nick on, I've worked with Nick on, on, on quite a few projects. He's pretty up there. You know, and that's his that's his main thing. He's he because he's an actor, he's so great, you know, working with actors. So And you and Mike Marvin would work again on uh, Wishman? Yes, we did Wishman and Mike and I have done script stuff together. I've done you know, he's always doing getting writing jobs and he sends things my way and I collaborate with him and I read scripts for him and give him notes on things and you know, we uh we've got a I've got a couple scripts that he has that he's pushing. <laughs> that I've, uh, you know, worked with him on. That's great. It seems like this uh, initial experience really helped lead to a lot of other things. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for sure, definitely. Pretty much uh, all, all, all those guys. They're all, they're all pretty uh, special people to me. Do you get recognized on the street as Gutter Boy ever? Yes, it happens. It does. It does happen. Uh, I mean, I live in North Carolina now. So every now, it doesn't happen that much. But when I when I was living in L.A., it probably happened, you know, you know, once a month or something. But, you know, what the thing is on Facebook, you get, you know, with Facebook now, I mean, people can just reach out to you. So I, I got just I've always over the years gotten gotten uh, people, you know, just sending you messages and a lot of times in different languages, but they're real casual about it. Like here, I'm just casually writing to you in Chinese. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, here. I'm casually writing you in Romania, Finland, Iceland, and uh, or people from different countries think I like, I love Ray. You know, they're they're broken English, whatever. People have always been uh, well, you know, just. The movie stands up. It's like epic silliness, and 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 it just gets cooler, I think. And uh, a lot of people, so people have grown up watching that movie just um, over and over and over again, you know. And after, I think when it was on it, when it first came out on HBO, they pretty much ran that thing, uh, you know, fifty times a day for years. <laughs> of course, we have not been compensated accordingly, but uh, that movie is yeah, run a lot. What are you working on now? I have a couple of scripts I'd like to shoot right now, but I'm mainly, I'm working on all different kinds of things. Scripts are always coming my way. I'm always working on stuff. I'm adapt, I'm personally adapting the book right now into a, a, a screenplay. I'm looking at any jackass who you know, wants to tell a story. He's got their script and their dream. 
And uh, you know who we did not talk about, which I do want to throw in, is our uh, Mr. Clint Howard. There is uh, no one on earth that is like Clint Howard. I did is a living legend who has been a crotchety old man who was 25 years old. I'm not sure if you, I'm not sure if you freaking picked up on that. You know, there is no one. Whenever you're with Clint, you feel extremely lucky. You know, he's, he's very unimpressed with himself and has no idea that people want to hang out with him. One of the best experiences you could ever have is to walk through an airport with Clint Howard. Oh my God. I've done it a few times. Oh, wow. Oh my God. It's like the cross section of people who come up to him or react to him is insane. You're like old folks, young folks, every incarnation of film geeks. It's hilarious. You know, and he's a he's a walking, you know, he's pretty much a walking encyclopedia of Hollywood and life stories. He knows everyone, he's worked with all of them probably gets about eight residual checks a day. (laughs) (laughs) And, okay, and my last thing is, uh, we didn't, you know, it's so funny. People always want to ask me about Charlie. I, first of all, I don't ever, I don't, if people ask me about it, I will, you know, give a very tidy uh, opinion. Most of the time, I don't even mention it because most, a lot of people have a lot of problems with him. But I, I feel about him like all the other people that I worked with on that movie. I did a couple movies with him. I, we worked at the same production company that he had with Dave Sherrill and Nick. You know, got a couple movies. I was, I was. Uh, he's just a great guy, and it's funny. Here's what I want. Here's the point I want to make about Charlie is, you know, Two and a Half Men. Obviously, it stands as, you know, it's a pretty much a lesson in terrific com- comedic writing, you know. And Charlie was great in the great in the role, but the show never really flipped my lid because Charlie is much funnier in real life than he is he was on that show. He's hilarious. He's a uh, pretty much a comedy magnet. When it's the guy in the suit in the wraith, is that Charlie or is that somebody else? I think they had a body. They had. A, I think they had a body double. No, they had. Yeah, they had. Uh, no, Charlie was in it a couple. He was not in that suit that much. He really wasn't. Yeah, you know, I don't remember him being in the suit that much, but Charlie was always Charlie was always around. I think he flew out a few times and was a couple times when we were doing that thing, but he was always around. But yeah, I guess he wasn't. I guess he wasn't in the, the tremendous amount of those scenes. Yeah, his career at that time was just insane, and just would yeah, blow yeah, up that was, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he pretty much. And I get the funniest thing. I don't know. Has anybody have you heard the Johnny Depp stories? I've only heard very brief things from Clint when he was talking about Johnny Depp showing up one day on set. Well, here's the thing, and then I'll, and I'll get off the phone. I just want to make sure that I, I, someone asked me about the rape, I could just get out a few of these things in there. The funny thing about Johnny Depp was, first of all, Johnny is a, is a, is a really prince of a guy, personally. He's a really nice guy. I have not been around him in several years, but I, I, I mean, I just know he's a really good, he's a really good guy. He's uber friendly, the whole nine yards. But at the time he was, he was, he was nobody. He was Sherilyn's boyfriend. And that was it. He was just there visiting her on the set. I believe he maybe had done Nightmare on Elm Street, but this guy was not, not a big star. He was like Sherilyn's, uh, Sherilyn Finn's boyfriend. But the funny thing was, I remember we were walking, I was walking with him and, you know, I was walking with him and Cheryl and we were walking to, I believe, go to the set. And I remember uh, walking next to the guy and just looking over and going, freaking guy is cool. He had just the perfect, like, rings and necklaces and, like, his jeans were just so, you know, and he had, like, this jean jacket on. And I was like, this guy, he's got, he's got, this guy, this is a good looking dude. So he really had. He had something back then. 
but he was nobody at the time. <laughs> he was Cheryl's boyfriend. Thanks to Mr. Howard and Mr. Bozian for taking the time to talk to us. You can hear more of our interview with Clint Howard on our upcoming Rock and Roll High School episode, which we are fairly certain is going to be quite epic, and that's coming this summer. So, gents, uh, I think we talked a little bit about this, but um, do you still think that the film holds up, and do you think that uh, it would be something you'd recommend to others? I would have no problems recommending this film to other folks, though I would definitely predicate it on the idea that it's – very much a time capsule. I think at the time the movie was kind of lumped in with the teen movie genre, almost as though the Lost Boys did teenage vampires and teen wolf or whatever did teenage werewolves. And this was like the teen ghost movie, but it's definitely not. And I think in a lot of ways, as much as it is such a time capsule in terms of its uh, style and the clothes and the, uh, the sensibility of it and the music and all that in some ways I do feel like it's almost ahead of its time just in the way that it really is pulling all of these old kind of genre and exploitation movies and uh, kind of mixing them together into one movie. I mean, it's like, it's a real drive-in movie, you know, and there weren't a ton of those made, I think at this level, not that this is a, a huge budget movie, but it did have some stars in it during the 80s. And I think if you are into those kinds of movies, I think this is actually a really good one. And we'll get more into that in a bit in terms of all of the uh, particulars that we see both, I would say, um, back reference and also I would say sort of like where we see similar stories in previous decades because this movie's going on 30 years. I would definitely go back to The Wraith well before I go back to Teen Wolf or Teen Wolf 2. <laughs> And I'll be completely honest with you guys, I've never really gotten into Lost Boys as much as other people. I don't know if I was just a little too old for it, or if it was just a little too flashy or something, but even when it shows on TV now, it's like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I like the the Jason Patrick storyline, but I really could do without the, the Corey's kind of thing going on. Yeah, I think when I was 9 or 10, I was a big Lost Boys fan. But of all of those, I would I would definitely go back to the Wraith before any of the others. You know, it's funny that you talk about how this sort of feels like a teen movie, but not really. And you have to remember, this was put out right around the time when John Hughes was starting to really make some big films. I mean, this is 85, 86. So, you know, you've had the first couple of John Hughes films in there. And you know what it also kind of reminds me of in sort of that similar style where you could go, okay, there are obvious quote unquote teen, you know, we're in high school kind of stuff is um, the the one that competed with the Lost Boys, which I like, Mike's not a big fan of, is uh, Near Dark. Almost kind of has that same thing where people could go, oh, well, this is supposed to be a teen film. Well, actually, no. Yeah, it's definitely kind of it has some of those trappings, but it's I think like the Wraith, it's really working on another level altogether. I like that these aren't necessarily high school films either. You know, what you mentioned uh, uh, near dark, that's definitely post high school. Same thing with this one. It's like it feels like maybe they graduated just a little bit ago, but we're definitely not worrying about you know going to class and what the principal thinks and i don't think that it's just a this is summer vacation kind of thing it feels more mature than kids worrying about what's happening in high school but it's not too far off 
I, I would say no. that if the characters are 21, that's pushing it. No, I'm definitely thinking 18, 19, somewhere right around there. Enough time on their hands to do stupid stuff, but not necessarily you know, having to get up every morning and, and go to their homeroom or something, which is kind of funny since, you know, bringing up Sherilyn Fenn as Audrey Horn, that she would go on to play a teenager four years after this. <laughs> so she was kind of going back in time a little bit. Uh, it's part of the grand old tradition of casting people in their late 20s as teenagers. So let's go ahead and take a break and play an interview with the writer and director of The Wraith, Mr. Mike Marvin, after these important messages. One dark and stormy night in the mid-80s, Joe Bob Briggs, Harlan Ellison, and the ghost of El Santo pulled a train on Elvira while Siskel and Ebert sobbingly masturbated in the corner. From that union arose the greatest movie critic and luchador that ever lived. But we're not going to talk about him. He's kind of a dick. Instead, we're going to talk about me, El Goro, the stuttering movie fan and host of the Talk Without Rhythm podcast. Every week on Talk Without Rhythm, I discuss two to three movies tangentially tied together by a theme. I cover action. And the most complete fighter in the world. Sci-fi. Open the pod bay doors, Hell. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Horror. Oh, no tears, please. It's a waste of good suffering. And the continuing adventures of James Spader, sexual deviant. You're not worried that I'm going to fuck you, are you? I'm not interested in that, and I'm waste. Now pull up your skirt. So check me out at TWORpodcast.blogspot.com, drunkenzombie.com, or subscribe on iTunes. Talk Without Rhythm, the only podcast that will not attract the world. Adios. All right, I'm here with Bill Byforce and Mr. Chris to tell you a little bit about Outside the Cinema. All right, Reverend Scott, take us uh, to church. Uh, what can we expect to find from a typical show? Two hours of just random blabber. <laughs> uh, is there anyone's coattails you wrote in on to popularity? I'm the guy that fucking burns the coattails and then pisses on them. You review all these exploitation, <laughs> horror, comedy, cult, and often all-around terrible movies. You must have a strong driving force that keeps you going. Ego. <laughs> I don't know if I've heard you say that before. Uh, yeah, I've been saying that for a while. Really? I have been saying that for a while. Also, I'm high on smack. Well, it's definitely working for you guys. Yeah. People are coming out in droves to support you on iTunes. We just the other day got a, a, a one-star review on iTunes. Well, that is one That is one star too many. <laughs> Let me tell you. The worst fucking piece of shit I've ever heard. This has been great, guys. Thanks, God. Ugh. That was good. Oh, he's got you crying over there. I'm good for the rest of the year. Nice. That was too much. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number ten, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your ten free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire just enter offer code booth at checkout and you'll get all 10 free gifts 
go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. This is Adam Spiegelman from the Cult Movie Podcast, proudly resents, and you listen to my favorite movie podcast, The Projection Booth. I know, it's messed up, right? Christopher Media, The Weedsman Podcast. Cures rickets, polio, conjunctivitis, AIDS. AIDS. Let's just, let's just go hog wild. Be in the car accident, you just <laughs> use a little bit and you'll be fine. Yeah, rub it on your car and yourself. <laughs> It'll fix your car. And your bones. <laughs> Try this special trick to get out of traffic tickets with Rick Simpson oil. Rub it on the cop. He'll just go away. <laughs> the Weedsman Podcast. Every Friday on iTunes and ChristopherMedia.net. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. So your initial directing experience could have gone a little bit better as far as kind of being dumped into hamburger and having to just think on the fly so much. When it came to the Wraith, how did that one kind of come together? Well, the Wraith, I was signed to direct the Wraith well before I did hamburger, and I was working on it. What happened was when hamburger came out and it got you know, got a lot of negative reviews, although it did really well in certain parts of the world. I mean, it did really well overseas. It did really well in Australia, did really well in Canada, you know, set records at a couple of movie houses. I mean, uh, it was really baffling. I was set to direct on The Wraith, and, and what happened on The Wraith was that was my first experience at battling and not my last, and certainly not the last, where everything was, every day was a hard-fought emotional battle to get the movie done. A guy was killed on the movie, and, you know, ultimately I was held responsible when, in fact, I was the last person to be held, held responsible on that movie. And, you know, it, it was... Making the Wraith was a true nightmare experience in filmmaking. There's very, very, very few movies like it that were nightmarish. I, I've heard from the butlers that uh, Apocalypse Now was a nightmare for them. I had lunch with them the day they got back from the Philippines. I can tell you that you know, working with bad human beings and then having a guy killed and when it was completely unnecessary and not, it was without point, was just really, I mean, that taught me a lot. That was a, that was a great lesson in, you know, what not to do and who not to work and do movies with. So that, that The Wraith has turned out to be another culty movie with fan clubs all over the world and guys building Wraith cars and guys collecting Wraith memorabilia is so strange to me, but then so is hot dog. So, so you kind of went from the fire, frying pan into the fire with that one. It sounds like. Yeah, I did. I mean, I, it, you know, I thought that the, I knew that hot uh, hamburger was not going to help my career, so I thought the race would because I felt that 
you know, I had all the I had all the tools to make a really great action car action movie, and what I didn't, and I brought in people f- that I trusted, and they were, you know, they were, you know, not very nice. As it turned out, they were not very nice guys, and uh, when that happened, I I found myself on the wrong side of, you know, a lot of different issues on on the Wraith and every day like I say every day on the Wraith was an emotional battle just the worst and then of course in the end to have a guy killed shooting second unit was just completely unforgivable you know that's what happens when you push a crew unnecessarily I'm not going to ask you to name names was it was it people though behind the camera or in front of the camera behind the camera and I will name names it was John Kemeny was the producer, and Jeff Sudson was the production manager, and they were pushing the production. And the day the guy was killed, those scenes weren't even on the call sheets. They created it that day, trying to push the production. The, the accountant came out and told me, why are you pushing this movie? You're, you're under budget, he said. And I found out later it was because you know, the producer was going to Canada and he had to be in Canada to do another movie. So he didn't give a shit. He was just wanted to get the movie done. He didn't care whether it worked or not. All he cared about was the next movie. I heard on the next movie, another guy died on his next movie too. Jeez. Yeah. So the movie kind of came out really good, almost despite all that stuff that was going on. The movie came out. Yeah. The movie came out as a, as a, you know, I still have my cringe moments when I watch it, but the movie, a lot of guys were 10, 12, you know, I made it for 14-year-old boys, and a lot of them, it became a cult movie. I, I mean, I'm always amazed. I get I get letters and requests all the time, and some guy builds wraith cars, <laughs> or he was built. He built about eight of them and selling them for 300000 a copy, so... People took that movie serious, much more seriously than I intended it to be. I always got a real kind of spaghetti western feel from the film. Was was that intentional? Yes, it was uh, based. I just basically plagiarized the idea uh, from High Plains Drifter. I've got one more question about the Wraith for you. The sure. the Clint Howard character Rughead was he yeah. kind of a nod to Eraserhead? Exactly. Okay. I, I always hoped that you were going for that. I just wanted to make sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, that's exactly right. And he, he was. We in the original first draft of the script, it was. It was. Uh, he was the fat kid. We called him the fat kid. He was the fat kid all the way through casting and everything. And then I was watching Eraserhead one day, and I thought we got to change it and. So I changed it to Rughead, and you know I co- kind of copied that and tried to make it fun. I tried to make the gang as tweaky as possible. Was it any surprise? Speaking of tweaky, was it any surprise to you when Charlie Sheen kind of had his moment a few years ago? No, um, Charlie melted down on the set of uh, the race. Uh, it was a major meltdown. You behind the scenes was as follows. He he. We were the second to the last day of principal, and he showed up on set. It was a Monday, 
he showed up on set from three days in Las Vegas. He was incoherent. And when I say incoherent, I mean he could not speak a single line. And I even tried doing it word for word, like three words. See if you can get three words up. He couldn't speak. He was so blasted. And I walked away. At one point, I walked away from him, and he fell over like a tree. I thought he had been killed. And um, so we we closed production that day. And Kemeny, who was just a to me just a monster anyway, called the completion bond company and told them he, and told the completion bond company that he could not guarantee delivery of the movie because of Charlie. So what happened is I reshot the scene with him and sent him home. And before I sent him home, I sat him down in the trailer and I said, Charlie, listen to me. I said, listen, buddy, you can't do this again. If you do this again, you will kill your career. You can't walk on set and so drunk, so wasted, you can't even speak your own name. And he's and he's and he was really upset, really humiliated with himself. And I said, "Just can't do it. You're going to be a big star. You could be a big star." Little did I know he had been cast already in Platoon. Well, it was two days later that the producer of Platoon, uh, what's his what's his name, um, Arnold? Damn, if I can remember his name. Yeah, I'm not going to be able to help you out on that one offhand. Yeah. Anyway, he and his wife showed up, and they wanted to know what the story was on uh, Arnold Copelson. Copelson, yeah. Copelson. Arnold and Ann Copelson showed up ready. They wanted to fire Charlie off of uh, off of um, Platoon. They were there to fire him, and they asked me point blank, and I. I actually looked him in the eye and I've always been, I've always felt strange about this, but I lied. And I said, no, Charlie behaved himself. He didn't do any of the things that you've heard. And the reason why I did that is because uh, Kemeny did not need to call the completion bond company and report Charlie. It wasn't a catastrophe. It was just a disaster. And, you know, Charlie learned a good lesson, but but Kemeny hated Charlie, and so he was going to make Charlie pay. So Copelson flies in with his wife, who was this battle axe woman, and they, they were there to kill Charlie's career, for sure. They didn't want to have any problems with Charlie in the Philippines. And so, you know, I just point blank told them, no, Charlie behaved himself on the whole movie. And then I talked to Charlie again, and I said, dude, you cannot do this shit. And he didn't. He never did that again on a movie that I know about. That's that's sort of an inside story. I told Charlie about this, by the way. I said, dude, I covered for you. Charlie and I still, we're, we communicate through mutual friends. Nick Cassavetes is one of my, is, is my closest friend. And he's very close to Charlie. He was fantastic in The Wraith. That was oh. the first time I think I saw him in anything. Yeah, really good. You kind of won the lottery, really, when I think about um, actors that have become a little unstable, because you had Randy Quaid in that one, too. Yeah, Randy, Randy was great. Something happened. Something got in Randy's way. 
his brother and I had a conversation about this, and to, you know, I guess it was the girlfriend. Everybody says it was the girlfriend. You know, she Bengali Randy, and I don't know if that's true, but Randy and I played golf a lot, and then suddenly he wasn't around anymore. Yet another SNL caster, too, because I think he and Lovitz were on the same seasons of SNL to start with. Yeah, they were. And I and Lovitz and I talked a few times after that, Charlie. I mean, and um, and Randy and everything. But you know, in the movie business, it's it's, it's kind of like working in a carnival. You know, you're to, you're thrown together with people for you know weeks on end, and then 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 you're and then you're you never see them again. You know, it's really it's really depressing. And it's one of the downsides about the movie business. People outside the movie business really don't know about. That's why my most of my friends are not in the movie business because I know they'll be there when I come home. That's a good point. Yeah, being from Detroit, I kind of have to ask you about the car. How did that deal kind of come together? That was uh, it was a Dodge, right? Yeah, I went to Dodge. I flew to flew to Detroit and and I met with those guys. And they were solidly behind the movie, but they did not want me to make the Road Warrior. And I was determined to make the Road Warrior, but to do it in a creative way. I wanted—I always liked the Road Warrior, the way the car stuff was shot, and I wanted to do something very similar to it. I never really accomplished it because of all the problems I had with Kemeny and Sutton. But... Um, the Detroit guys were great, man. They they sent me brand new cars, and I blew those cars up. They were brand new. That car that goes launched off the cliff was brand new. I don't even think we took the engine out of that thing. We cabled it off the cliff and just blew it to pieces. Oh my God! And those things weren't cheap either. No, they were at that time in eighty five, eighty six. They were like twenty five thousand bucks. Oh. <clears throat> each that, that must have been a significant part of your budget well no dodge gave them to us oh wow yeah dodge gave them to us uh, what was the reaction to the wraith when that one came out the wraith got good reviews everywhere in the united states except for los angeles a guy named michael wilmington I, here's another moment for you after everything we went to get that movie made and all the pain and suffering and horror, Michael Wilmington, and it was headlines, it was a turbocharged cartoon, dot, 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 for idiots. And it was in the L.A. Times calendar section, reviewed big time, and I remember sitting at the table and my wife saw it and she broke down and started crying. And... I I will never be able to forgive this guy for doing that because it was totally unnecessary and it was the only review like that. There were lukewarm reviews, but there weren't pans and Janet Maslin in the New York Times gave it kind of a good review and all things considered, you know, it it got a fairly fairly got some fair, fairly decent reviews and got some bad reviews, but it was, you know, some of the more recent stuff, just a few, and then we'll let you go. Um, sure. Recently, you produced, uh, I don't know if it was both parts, but definitely the first part of uh, the Atlas yeah. Shrugged, I, right? 
I did. And I was, produced. Was wondering how that came together. That's an int- uh, another interesting story. I, I was uh, a guy came to. I was uh, just left Amark Entertainment after five or six years of running Amark, and a guy showed up. He was about to lose the rights after 20 years for a guy named John Agliero. Going to lose the rights to Atlas Shrugged, and so he um, he commissioned a script that had to be written in like 20 days. Seriously, so I sat down and wrote the script based on the first 300 pages of the book, and he he ended up. Um, Financing the movie, he had a uh, June 15th, he had to have it in production. They threw it into production. One of my good friends ended up stepping in and he had nine days to prep the movie, cast and prep the movie, and we did it. And I produced the movie uh, and uh, I directed all the uh, second unit in the movie and Paul Johansson directed all the principal and you know what worked in the end the movie worked and it was the number one limited rele- release in the country that weekend and it did okay i mean it made it made about i don't know 5 or 6 million dollars it only cost 2 or 3 million it cost about 4 million dollars to produce but it did quite well and um and i they never picked up the phone to have me do uh, uh, part two or part three or Paul or they never they didn't even use the same cast they were so strangely arrogant they just went and they did brand new cast brand new crew everything was brand new it's like why would you guys do that but that's what they did and then the third one they did was another brand new so there was no continuity of characters whatsoever but the first one was the successful one and you know, I'm kind of proud that we got it off the ground with no, you know, having done it before, I knew what to expect. After Hamburger, I knew what to expect, if you know what I mean. Yeah, definitely. No prep. No prep. You're going on sheer experience. And by the time I got to Atlas Shrugged Part 1, you know, I had 40 years of experience making movies, and I knew what to do. I remember when it was released, it sort of went out like... um to follow the model of maybe something like Passion of the Christ, the idea of reaching into these groups and, and getting them to show up and things like that. I mean, that was uh, sort of an interesting way to uh, distribute the film. That's correct. And and Rocky Mountain took it out that way, and they invited people, and they did, they did you know, uh, fan clubs, and, and, uh, and that's the wrong, probably the wrong word, but, you know, they had a lot of Atlas Shrugged people who were fans of the book, and they reached out and got those people in the theaters and it was fun. I can tell you it was fun to experience that because people just loved that book and they loved the movie, even though the movie was flawed, they loved it. And, um, you know, I was about, I got about 90% of what I wanted when I took over the movie from the creative point of view uh, from from the creative, uh, I had with what I had, I had about ninety. I got about ninety percent of what I wanted done on it, and it was only after 
the producer stepped in and meddled with the movie, but he didn't have time to ruin it. He only had time to goof it, uh, goof it up a little. And so the movie turned out fairly okay. That book by Ayn Rand is kind of a doorstop. I mean, that must have been a challenge to try and make a script out of it. Yeah, in 20 days. Can you imagine? We, I was working 12 hours a day on the thing, and I was exhausted in the end. And then Paul did the movie, and then about, I don't know, maybe two or three weeks into the post, Paul brought me in, and we started creating how we would approach second unit. And then Paul went up, left to do something else, and I ended up taking over the whole entire picture to finish the picture. Totally took it over. So uh, what are you working on now? What are some of the things that you're uh, putting together? Well, I have Hot Dog 2 for the winter of 2016, or should I say Hot Dog the remake, or how about just Hot Dog the movie, like Fast and Furious, you know? Nobody will care. It's been too long. And then uh, I'm writing a script called Carousel. Cassavetes and I are writing a script called Carousel for a New York producer, which is... um, about, you know, it's a story of, you know, love and loyalty between two brothers who come out of different worlds and are sort of forced together to deal with craziness of Wall Street and short sellers on Wall Street. You know what short sellers are like guys who sell like Herbalife, go after Herbalife. And so that's what I'm working on now. Thank yeah. you. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this has been great. Fun talking about it. Thanks again to Mike Marvin for joining us. You can hear the rest of our interview with him on our Hamburger the Motion Picture episode that was just done recently. So, gentlemen, as uh, we alluded to, it, it does borrow from other places, the Wraith. So let's talk about some of those things that we see, like uh, what are some similar stories and ideas backward, and then uh, maybe even going forward. Well, I definitely saw a lot of High Plains Drifter when I watched this the first time. I think both of you guys have rewatched that one recently, and so hopefully you think that I'm fair in my judgment of that. But this whole idea of the stranger coming out of the desert, coming into town, and this whole idea of this uh, avenging spirit. And I, what I liked about um, High Plains Drifter, we have, again... Um, you know, you probably should see a lot of scars on Clint Eastwood's back because his character may or may not be the ghost of this former marshal that was in town who got whipped to death by these three baddies who were there. And the whole town, except for two people, kowtowed to these baddies. And I like that whole idea that everybody is going to get punished except for the two people that you know, kind of tried to stand up for him. One of them was powerless because of his size, and the other one was powerless because she was being held back uh, against her will. But that whole idea of the spirit coming into town, taking over, and uh, putting things right that were wrong. Plus, Clint has a pretty sweet ride in this film. Hell yeah, he does. I think the similarities are really spot on, especially the kind of flashbacks or almost direct references to High Plains Drifter, the shot of the headstone. Um, and yeah, I just I just rewatched it last week. And uh, then going back to the Wraith, I was so glad when, when Chuck Sheen's first order of business was not to uh, just rape a townsperson. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. I uh, I took that in my notes. I go, Clint, little rapey here, son. Yeah. Yikes. <laughs> so many great actors in High Plains Drifter. I mean, everybody is just so good in this. And there's so many of the townspeople are just like, oh, my gosh, this person is great. Oh, and this person is great, too. And, so, you know, again, big fan of Mork and Mindy. So seeing, you know, um, oh, God, why am I blanking on the guy's name? The one in there that that I liked, and I was like, I've seen him in other things, but I can't remember who he is because he looked familiar. Was the guy who played uh, Mordecai? You were talking about the the the, the little person, and how um, Eastwood's character, who doesn't say his name, it's just I think he's listed in the credits as the stranger, makes him not only the sheriff but the mayor of the town. And everybody's like, "All right, well, this guy's off his off his rocker. What the hell is he doing?" I was very glad to see uh, Exodor show up. Um, the the crazy monk Richard Donner, it, he was always a treat. And then the guys who played the villains in this, of course, Jeffrey Lewis, who had worked with Clint Eastwood on a ton of things, he's amazing. And then Anthony James, who uh, just put out a book recently called Acting My Face, and I'm hoping to dive into that pretty soon and have an interview with him on the show. But uh, yeah, some great great faces some great characters and yeah billy curtis was amazing in this and i was so glad that he had such a juicy role and really i mean he's he might as well be second build in this film because it's really his and clint eastwood's film which is just an amazing thing that you know they would cast a little person in a role this big at the time and really treat him with a lot of respect which i liked yeah, you get the feeling that the Eastwood character is really in with the underdog and having this guy who's kind of been pushed around by people in town because of his stature, and then he comes in and sort of levels him up to everyone else is kind of a kind of an interesting thing. Of course, I kept thinking of um, <laughs> uh, Blazing Saddles a lot because of John Hillerman being in here as the bootmaker, and uh, he shows up as one of the Johnsons in Blazing Saddles as well. For some reason, the uh, the guy, as you were saying, who um, Billy Curtis was playing Mordecai, uh, I just had this flashback to like Putney Swope and the uh, the guy who plays the president, which I know is not. I don't think he's the same guy, but I was just like, oh, they got the guy who played the president. Oh, that Putney guy Swope. had that. Didn't he have like a German accent? Yeah, it was him and the and the um, the the woman, which I think Bob Downey told us was his sister, not his wife. <laughs> he's like making out <laughs> with her in the film. Oh, the rape might be a little much for today's audience, but um, I don't know. I That whole idea of him raping this woman, I mean, really, when you get down to it, everybody in the town kind of gets what they deserve, and I, maybe that's kind of what she deserved. But that whole thing where she comes back in and tries to shoot him, shooting him point-blank range, and he is still alive afterwards, which really should be one of the big things where you're like, there's something going on with this character that is a little supernatural here. And that whole line about, um, you know, I'm amazed that it took her so long to come back in and do this. So I I really appreciated some of the dialogue in this, too. And it was, uh, I think this was right he uh, Eastwood had already directed play Misty for me, but this was, I want to say, his first Western that he had done post-Leone and Siegel or the first Western that he directed himself in. Yeah, and for me, when I was watching it after recently we had done uh, Once Upon a Time in the West, and of course, you know, I've seen all the dollars 
trilogy films and, and all of that. You see a lot of that Leone style in here. I mean, a lot of just looks. Like, he doesn't say much. He just gives people looks. <laughs> and I was just like, that's the Eastwood. That's the, the, the Western we know out of him, you know, because that seems to be where it comes from, at least in my mind. Yeah, and that final little bit of going back to the Wraith, that whole thing of, you know, who are you, bro? Who are you, bro? Like, I don't remember the Billy character using the word bro that much, but he sure was towards the end of the film. And then, you know, Charlie Sheen's like, you just said who I am. And that whole thing of Mordecai, you know, you never you never said who you are or whatever. And he's like, oh, you know my name. And then move over to the the uh, headstone that he's carving, you know, and it's like, oh, that's nice. Yeah, good stuff. Way to end a movie there, Clint. Yeah, and he just goes off into the desert, into the mirage, which which I think should have been the better ending for the Wraith, but that's me. Yeah, should have just gone off and, like I said, become star stuff again or something, or become those weird animated blobs that were at the beginning of the Wraith that would have kind of helped thing but maybe it's that whole you know you got to write off with the girl thing but didn't work for me you guys have anything else on high plains drifter i do not i don't either for me when i was watching the wraith i was thinking of older stories or other things that i remember in terms of like vengeful spirits and like the idea of the the headless horseman maybe like legend of sleepy hollow which was then converted by warren zevon into uh Roland the Headless Thompson Gunner, great song. And then also was thinking about Ghost Rider, the Marvel comic from starting in the late 60s, early 70s, I think. And that's obviously been turned into a film at this point. But the idea of these, you know, supernatural forces that come back and seek vengeance. Yeah, I can really see that, especially with the head, Headless Horseman character. And I didn't read Ghost Rider. You know, I've, I'm only familiar with the movie, so I'm not sure how the character changed between the comics and the movies. Was he kind of a wronged person? Yeah, the character um, kind of sold his soul to the devil, basically. The character himself wasn't wronged, but he sold his soul to the devil and so would become the spirit of vengeance to right wrongs or whatever. But the character himself wasn't like in, in the Wraith or High Plains Drifter where he himself was wronged. That's a really good point that you make about it being like some of these older characters, I think as much as I like the idea of this kind of duality of Jake and the Wraith being the same person, I do think having Charlie Sheen play like normal guy, romantic leading man, and also being the Wraith, I think steps on a little bit of the kind of vengeance angle. Like I, 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 part of me wonders if I wouldn't almost rather the Wraith just be the Wraith and be this spirit of vengeance that shows up and let it be kind of dark. You know, one thing about High Plains Drifter is like it's really willing to be dark and nasty. And I think the Wraith sometimes undercuts some of that with the romance angle. Which is the thing we've talked about before as characters as force of nature and not necessarily human or characters that are relatable in some way and I, th- I can't remember what episode we talked about that idea on but the one that i always come back to is is the first halloween film and john carpenter's use of the michael myers character is just sort of this thing he's this force that's it there's really nothing there it's just sort of this force and you have to buy into that and for some people that's kind of a leap but i think he could have done this done a similar thing with the wraith where it's like he doesn't talk he doesn't you know he doesn't really interact with anyone he's just there to meter out the vengeance 
but I want to know how Michael Myers <laughs> became who he is. I want to know what his mom and dad were like. Well, then, then watch the 15th film in the series. I don't know which one where they get into that. Um, one of the weird things about the movie, especially on this revisit, it almost feels like there might be too many characters to the point where you don't know whose story is being told. Because, Mike, like you said... Charlie Sheen isn't in the movie that much, so it's not really his story. It could be Sherilyn Fenn's, but she's really just there to as kind of a prop. It could be Billy's story, but it's not really. He gets a, It's not Randy Quaid investigating this case. It's not even Nick Cassavetes. It's like the movie never quite decides whose eyes to tell the story through. And I think you could almost do it through any of these characters' eyes, but instead the movie kind of tries to give equal time to everyone. And I think that lack of a point of view makes it a little bit messier than it needs to be. Well, I don't necessarily think that you have a point of view in High Plains Drifter, but to your point, we hang out with Clint Eastwood the whole time. And it's like the, the camera is kind of over his shoulder almost through the entire thing. And then the scenes where he's not in it and he's in, what, 80, 90% of the film. And those other scenes are just things that are going to play into his story as we go along. So you're right as far as we don't necessarily focus on any one person in the Wraith as much as we need to. I mean, really, it should be like the Billy and Sherilyn Fenn story. And it's just like, come on, guys, you really should have done that a little bit more. And yeah, to your point, Rob, I, I think that whole idea of... Charlie Sheen, you know, nice guy coming in, romancing the girl, kind of. I mean, they do have the sex scene and everything, and it's just like, yeah, I would have much rather him have been as standoffish as Clint Eastwood. I mean, Clint Eastwood is just, he's there for one purpose, and he is just manipulating all of these pieces on the chessboard, and he doesn't spend time with you know one character over others i mean i talked about how much mordecai is in the film but it's not like he's you know palling around with mordecai they're playing cards and you know drinking beers or something he's again using mordecai uh in a way to you know pit these people in the town against each other and just create this this hell on earth that needs to be there for his vengeance but yeah it's uh the the Wraith is a little too unfocused when it comes to that. Yeah. Yeah. The one movie that I kept coming back to was The Crow, and I rewatched that one again today because I remembered, you know, of course I remember T-Bird, who's played by David Patrick Kelly, and Skank, uh, who's played by Angel, Angel David. And then as I was thinking about it, I was like, oh yeah, Skank, and then there's also Fun Boy, so there's uh, not Gutter Boy, unfortunately, but uh, kind of having almost a one-to-one here with some of these uh, guys in the gang. And again, another Spirit of Vengeance coming back and i think this one too is very well done and um of course you know another tie from the wraith to the crow is this whole idea that somebody died during the production and in this case it was our leading man brennan lee who who died during the production of the crow 
and I know it's a horrible thing to say, but I will say that I think some of the challenges that were presented because of Brandon Lee dying actually made The Crow a better film in the way that they had to present a lot of things, you know, his flashbacks and the way that they um, did a lot of things without showing his face and just the way that they kind of worked around the problem of him not being there anymore. I mean, I want to say they shot maybe 80% of the film and then had this the rest of this where they had to kind of work around not having the leading man anymore. This kind of falls to the Billy and Sherilyn Fenn characters. And really this is the story of Sarah, who's uh, the little girl played by Rochelle Davis and Sergeant Albrecht, who's played by Ernie Hudson. It's their story, their friendship. And then, Eric Draven, the crow, is kind of you know subsequental to the film. Amazing, amazing performance. I forgot how much I love Brandon Lee in this. And while I was watching it, I just kept thinking to myself, I wonder if Heath Ledger watched this film in preparation for being the Joker because the two characters really shared a lot of qualities to me. Yeah, I can get that. The thing with sort of the spirit, both of them were killed. So the idea is that both him and his fiancée were both killed. And then he comes back to avenge their deaths. The thing is, is that it's been a while since I've read the book. But I know that the graphic novel, the comics, were created out of James O'Barr dealing with his own grief. His girlfriend was killed, I believe, in a horrible traffic accident. And they were... um, they were to be married and all that. And the the concept of the crow came out of that. I think she was killed by a drunk driver. So he channeled all that in there. But I don't remember how close the graphic novel is to the film. I don't believe it's that close. I think that a lot was created out of the ideas that were in the book. But uh, it was a bit different. I think the crow also does a nice job of kind of bridging the two in terms of the character is, is very much sort of the the mystical, vengeful spirit of High Plains Drifter, but I think it pulls in kind of the the romantic element uh, in a way that's much more successful than The Wraith. Yeah, it almost would have been better if Sherilyn Fenn, her character, had been killed as well, um, just because you have this romance that goes beyond the grave kind of thing and that you know she's not necessarily a character you know except in flashbacks in the crow the whole idea of his girlfriend being murdered by these guys and he's getting vengeance more for her than he is for himself i kind of like that a little bit more it made sense when it came to getting vengeance for yourself when it came to high plains drifter but again you know we're sticking with the clint eastwood character and everything but with this one i like that Brendan Lee, and the other thing that I really like, just to throw this in here, there's no doubt in the world that there is supernatural stuff going on in here, and it, but yet they're not hitting you over the head with it. So it's not like, uh, you know, like, oh, Jesus, supernatural, this is going to be spooky or whatever. It felt very natural to the plot that this spirit of vengeance is coming back a year later, and here he is, and he's going to take revenge on all these guys. They worked with the supernatural very well, and it wasn't this kind of like, 
that weird reveal that we were talking about later on. It wasn't like, oh, you're you're Eric Draven this whole time. Wow, we never figured that out. Like he wipes off the makeup at the end or something. Oh, wow, jeez, you could have fooled me. I thought you were just some dude who was wearing my makeup this whole time. So I was uh, glad that they embraced the supernatural with this one. And it just kind of like High Plains Drifter, they embraced the supernatural with that one as well. The Crow also stands as kind of a time capsule of its period uh, for the way that it uses the the popular music of the era in the same way that uh, the Wraith does for 1986. Totally. Though I have to say, I still get chills when he's running across the rooftops and Nine Inch Nails cover of uh, the Joy Division song is going. I just that scene, seeing that in the theater all those years ago, and then even seeing it again today, I was just like, yeah, this really, really works. And it's another Detroit film, not shot in Detroit. So there you go. Yeah, when they're going through the city and there's like elevated trains and stuff, I'm like, yeah, let's no, let the people move her. Yeah, that's not Detroit. Uh, the the one thing that's kind of being a Detroit nerd, when they go to the club and there's the scene of like they're going down the stairs or something, and there's like various band photos and stuff like that. Because he was in a band that was part of the thing in The Crow. One of the band photos that's next to him was an actual Detroit band of that era, which was a, a promo photo shot of Big Chief. Very cool. Nothing wrong with being a Detroit nerd, Rob. Oh, you know, we do what we can. All right, we're going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show. Every year, hundreds of young people travel the country and disappear. God help those who get caught in the tourist trap. (laughs) Tourist trap, where beautiful young people looking for excitement... suspense that makes this the nightmare that never ends. Something crazy is going on at the tourist trap. right we're back next week with a look at the 70s horror film tourist trap we'll be joined by the head honcho of all things geek juice media alex jowski as we talk about the film now before we go want to thank this week's special guest host patrick bromley for joining us now we had you on our bad lieutenants episode last year and uh since then what have you been up to sir 
Um, I was murdered and came back to life as a vengeful podcast host. Uh, Ooh, <laughs> the big reveal at the end of the show. That's exactly. I waited till the end, guys. See, um, we, but we already knew you were you. So were you you? <laughs> and like, like, what happened? I never mind. Can I ride on your motorcycle anytime? Excellent. Um, no, I'm. Uh, I still host a podcast and run a site called F This Movie over at fthismovie.net, posting new content every day and just uh, plugging away, seeing a lot of movies. What kind of stuff are you covering lately, sir? Everything from new releases to a regular column I do on full moon movies. So I'm actually really excited to hear your tourist trap episode. As well you should, because we do talk to Charlie Band a little bit for that one. Awesome. All right, well, thanks again, Patrick, and thanks to everybody for listening to the show. If you want to return the favor or return from the vet or return from the dead to seek your vengeance, head on over to our iTunes page and give us a review. Won't cost nothing. Now let's hit the road.
Ghost Rider, motorcycle hero He's a looking so cute Sneaking round and round and round in a blue jumpsuit Cruise rider, motorcycle hero Beep, 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 he's a blazing away Stars, stars, stars in the universe Goose rider, motorcycle hero this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media, let's make some noise.